First Corinthians chapter 15, verse one. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and which also you stand by which also you are saved. If you hold fast to the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I'm the least of all of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I'd labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they. So we preached and so you believed. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith also is in vain. And Father, we thank you for this word. Father, we pray that as we come before you, Lord. Lord, I ask for those who haven't come to faith in Christ, Lord, that you would help them to come to believe, that you would help them to see this story as a reality of the risen Lord. Whatever it is that they need connected, Lord, may they come to have a relationship with you this day. And Father, for those of us who have this relationship, we pray that the reality would have a greater impact in our life, Lord, that we would walk more boldly with you, that we would trust you as we live out our lives. Father, help us to yield to your spirit that is leading us day by day. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. This ultimately is where we're we're heading. You see, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, there's no point in us being here. There's absolutely no point us being here. You should be out doing whatever else, because if he didn't raise from the dead... This is useless. We're just wasting our time. But I believe that he did raise from the dead based on the evidence. It's overwhelming. I will probably say it again. Well, I know I'll say it again, that if you're here and you're still searching, we offer the case for Christ as a tool to help you look at the evidence. Take them. Take all of them. I, that we, that's what they're there for. We'll replace them. You can travel around the world and visit grave sites of tombs of, of places just coming from Israel to walk into the building where where the second king of Israel, King David, is there in his casket. People flock from around the world to visit his tomb. If you go down the hill to the Kedron Valley, there's the prophet Zacharias buried there. You can go to the East Coast to the to the tomb of the unknown soldier. There's. There's graves all over that people flock to. They flock to them for what's in the grave. The thing that separates Jesus's grave, we went to the garden tomb, which may or may not even be the site. We don't know. But the thing about Jesus grave that separates it from all others is that it's empty and people flock to it. It changes everything. And so I hope that as we go through this story, it would come anew to us, that we would that that the light bulb would come on, that we would see this as a story. I pray that you could see the movie and of what happened sort of unfolding. And in John chapter 19, we're going to pick up our story. I got in trouble. I didn't get in trouble, but. Anna gave me a hard time because she she likes tradition. And she's like, I can't believe on Good Friday you didn't even read the Good Friday story. I'm like, I'm sorry. So maybe I'm doing this for my wife. 
But in order to understand the resurrection, we have to understand what happened beforehand. And so in John 19, the story unfolds. Jesus had been with his disciples the night before. They were praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. At that time, they came to him. He was arrested as he was betrayed by Judas. He's eventually brought before Pilate. In verse 1, we read, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. We need to understand what this means. There, there likely was some sort of uh, block that he would have been handcuffed to. And they would have taken whips. That at the end of the whips, there would be little shards of bone. That when they whipped him, it just didn't whip him. But it dug into his flesh. And it probably took more strength pulling it back than it did going forward. For it was caught in his flesh. And it would just rip out chunks of flesh and muscle. This is something that often people would die from. And so this is what happened to Jesus. And as this is happening to Jesus, we read, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. So they find a a plant that has thorns on it. They twist it up. Sarcasm. These guys, who knows if they had been drinking, who knows their attitude. Soldiers can be a little rough around the edges. Oh, he's the king of Jesus. Well, let's let's make him look like a king. Ha 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 ha. They find it. They put a crown onto his head. They force it onto him. They put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, hail, king of the Jews. And they give him slaps to the face. Can you imagine? We read in the scriptures that this was done. For my sin, according to scripture, that they're beating him, they're mocking him. This isn't just some story. Verse four. Pilate came out again and said to him, behold, I'm bringing him out to you. So that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So there's this scene, there's sort of behind the scenes where the soldiers and Pilate have access. That in front of the building or the courtyard, there's where the crowds, the masses who have drugged Jesus to Pilate to have him executed. So this beating's happening behind the scenes. Pilate is watching them thrash this man. He, he wasn't necessarily a sensitive guy. He's seen this stuff before. Seeing a guy that was being executed didn't phase him. But as he watched this happen to Jesus, clearly this man wasn't a guilty man. And so he saw that the violence, the action that had been done to him. And he says, well, we'll bring him out to the crowd and maybe they'll change their mind. And so he ushers Jesus forward, standing before the people. Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. Certainly crooks would have confessed by now. They would have begged for mercy. They would have something different would have happened than how he was acting. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold, the man. I think he probably said this because Jesus was so disfigured with blood and torn up. That it would be hard to decipher him from from another man. He did not look the same because of the abuse he took. And he said, this is the man. This is what I've done to him. There's no guilt in him. Is this enough? Verse 6. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify, crucify, death penalty, kill him. You're not done yet. Finish the job. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. He's like, I don't want to kill this man. You do it. And the Jews answered him and said, we have a law that and by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. Don't don't let anybody ever tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. This is why he was crucified. Because he made very clear claims to the people of Israel that he was their Messiah, that he was the Lord. And they're saying, crucify him. Pilate is in a precarious situation. According to Roman law, you had freedom to practice religion. 
This is the Passover. People from around the world had flocked into Jerusalem. There was freedom so long as no, no problems occurred. And there's this uprising on his hands. There's a riot about to happen. And he's trying to, to calm things down. And he says, you kill him. He says this knowing they're not allowed to kill him. That they could inflict punishment, but they certainly didn't have the authority to kill his life. Only the Romans had that authority. And they said, we have a lie. He made himself out to be God. That's blasphemy. The death penalty is required, which was a true statement. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, verse 8, he was even more afraid because he knew the trouble that he had on his hands. How was he going to get out of this? And he entered into the praetorium again and he said to Jesus, he sees the uproar of the crowd. He sees Jesus back there. He kind of calls a timeout. He goes back there. He's like, Jesus, we have to have a little meeting here. Can you work with me? Like, this is really bad what's going on here. It's going to end bad for both of us unless something changes. And he said to him, Jesus, he says, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Work with me, Jesus. I don't think you're guilty, but I can't help you unless you start communicating. And when he starts bragging about his authority, that he has the authority to release him or to condemn him. Jesus speaks up and in verse 11, we read that Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered to me to you has the greater sin. Jesus says, listen, this isn't accident that I'm here. If you read through the gospels, we certainly don't have time to do this right now. But you see crowds trying to arrest Jesus, trying to take him into custody, and he just eludes them. Constantly when they asked him, he said, my time hasn't come yet. It's not the time. It's not the time. It wasn't that he wasn't sly enough this night. Suddenly he was like, oh, man, they got me. I was, I was on a good run for three years, and all of a sudden they got me. The time had come. His ministry was nearing the end. He had his last act to fulfill. And the fact that he stood there before Pontius Pilate was right in a line with God's will because God was making the sacrifice that would end all sacrifices. Verse 12, as a result of this, Pilate made offers to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. They're threatening him. With the rebellion and their rebellion would be that this guy's rebelling against Caesar. Certainly it would have ended his life. And Jerusalem, he felt feared was would go into some sort of mini riot or war. With all of these people visiting from around the world, it wouldn't be good. Verse 13, therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat, a place called the pavement. But in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. That's noon. And he said to the Jews, behold, your king. So they cried out away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Interesting, the people of Israel saying this. We don't, we didn't article it with, huh? Caesar, when Jesus said, render under Caesar with Caesar's, their coins basically said Caesar is God. So he then handed him over to be crucified. So Jesus begins his walk. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place they called the place of the school, which is it called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him with two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. And in this, this fulfills prophecy given in Isaiah 53, 9. Throughout this passage, as we continue through, you're going to see that the Apostle John 
often uses to fulfill the scripture, to fulfill the scripture according to scripture. There are prophecies from many, 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 many years before that all aligned up with the crucifixion crucifixion of Christ, authenticating who he was. And so there he's being crucified with a criminal on each side of him. And Pilate wrote on the inscription and put it on the cross. And it was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered what I have written, I had written. So as they crucified him above, they put this little placard. This isn't unusual. Where he was crucified was right outside of the one of the main gates into the city. When the Romans would crucify people, they would do it outside of the city so that the visitors, as they approached the city, would see these people that had been executed for crimes they had committed. The crimes they committed were posted above them. This was a warning. This land is controlled by Rome. You're welcome here, but you better mind your business. And if you get out of hand, if you break our rules, this is going to happen to you. This wasn't out on the countryside like a lot of our modern art paints it. This was a major thoroughfare. And so there Jesus, naked, beaten, bloodied, hung on the cross. As people walked by, they could see him. He wasn't dead yet. They could talk to him if they chose to, and they did. The Jews are saying, don't say king of the Jews. Say he said. Don't say he's God. You're just validating what he's saying. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also a tunic. And now the tunic was seamless, woven in in one piece. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to notice to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, this messianic psalm predicting what would happen. And John, as he writes this in hindsight, said all of these things were foretold how did we miss it but standing by the cross of jesus were his mother his mother's sister and mary magdalene i said that not to be confusing there's three marys there there's mary his mother there's mary his aunt who is married to cleopas and then there's mary magdalene these are the three women standing there When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's John, the author of this letter. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. There's an emotional scene here. And it's easy to miss if we don't kind of put the story together. Here's Jesus on the cross. I think that I often kind of picture the cross as like, oh, Jesus was like way, way, way over there. We kind of saw it, but you don't see the brutality of it. There was no way to like interact. But Jesus is like there. Arms reach. Maybe they're there. They could touch his feet. Certainly, he could communicate to them and they could communicate to him. And here's his mother. Now, I was I often talk about I was raised Catholic and now here I am Protestant and I kind of see both sides. So often the Protestant church reacts with Mary to, to kind of. To go against the Catholic teaching that's not in alignment with scripture. She's not co-redemptious. She's not God. She wa- but she was a young woman whom God chose to, to have his son enter into this world. 
She raised him. He was her flesh. I don't know if you guys have ever been around a mother with a dead child of hers, but I have. It's not, it's not pleasant to see. It's not supposed to be that way. And so there Mary is just weeping, overwhelmed. I imagine she's holding his feet saying, I love you. We don't, we don't know what she's saying. The scripture doesn't tell us, but certainly she's overwrought. And she doesn't care about the vile sight of him. She's trying to comfort her baby. Now, John, the apostle, the one whom Jesus loved, this guy who was so filled with zeal. Jesus, it was like his kid brother. He's the youngest of all of the the disciples. It's thought that he could actually be Jesus's cousin. He was Jesus referred to him as a son of thunder because of his great statements. And and by the end of John's life, he only saw himself as a man whom Jesus loved. It's not arrogance. But in this scene, the last time Jesus had addressed or talked to John was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knew it was coming and he needed to pray. And he brought the 12 disciples into the garden. Then he sat them down and he said, pray for the hour is near. Then he took his three disciples who had this very special relationship, Peter, James and John. He takes them even farther And then Jesus goes, I think it's as a stone's throw away. And then when Jesus is praying, he comes back. And what are they doing? And Jesus like, what are you doing? Can you not pray for an hour? This is the last interaction that the scripture records that John actually had with Jesus. John had relationships. So during the trial, he was able to penetrate into the trial further than anybody else and he's there and now he's at the foot of the cross there's no other interaction recorded jesus's mother mary is obviously distraught and jesus on the cross sees his mom he sees john and i don't know if john's like trying not to make eye contact i can't i could even pray for an hour had i only known that this is what was coming Jesus looks at his mother and he looks at John. He can't use his hands. And he says, John, this is your mother now. This is my earthly mother. Will you take care of her for me? Take my responsibility. Tradition holds that John cared for Mary until her death. She was a human. She's not God. She didn't ascend into heaven. She died likely in Jerusalem under John's care. He cared for her during the end. Can you imagine how seriously John would take this command of Jesus? And John says this to this disciple, he said, behold, your mother from that hour. He essentially says, I took her into my own home. She became my mom because Jesus gave me that responsibility and I cared for her the best that I could until she died. After these things, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture there, that phrase is again. He said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon the branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. If you've ever been in the intimate moment of somebody dying, their mouths get dry. You don't just give them a glass of water. Still to this day, there's a little stick with a sponge. Put a little water and you just kind of rub it around their mouth. And that's what they're doing for Jesus. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine in verse 30, he said, it is finished. And he bowed up his head and gave up his spirit. I love this. It wasn't that he died. It wasn't that he like, I mean, he did die. Don't take that wrong. But it wasn't like it happened to him. He gave up his spirit. He, he allowed himself to enter into death. Because he's the creator and sustainer of all things. In him, there's life, there's breath. 
And in other places, when we, this moment, we said that an earthquake happened, it was dark, the, the veil of the temple, which stood 60 feet high, 20 feet wide, four inches thick, into the holiest of holies, in that earthquake, that cloth tore in parts, and the holiest of holies, it was no more as it had ever been before. The presence of God was no longer there. Then the Jews, because it was a day of preparation, that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. I'm not going to, I could get distracted and go into a lot of details, but the Sabbath is a big deal. The, the Sabbath is still a big deal in Israel. If you have any interaction with Jewish people, the Sabbath means Saturday. For us in the Western world, we would think, okay, that starts at sunrise on Saturday. Not to the Jewish people. And the reason it doesn't, it starts Friday afternoon at sunset is because that's how scripture records days if you go back to genesis you'll notice it was night and then it was day day one it was night and then day day two this is how the scripture handles this now it was a high day this this sabbath was a special sabbath because you're leading into the the passover without going into a bunch of detail this is a big deal this is like the super bowl of holidays for the jewish people even today when you go there the sabbath could start at sunset but man friday morning they're making preparations getting everything going but when you're talking about the passover they're going to start even earlier and because this holiday was approaching they asked Pilate that the legs might be broken and they might be taken away can we speed this up this is a super big holiday we don't want dead bodies hanging out here like normal we want it kind of cleaned up for the holidays we do stuff like this like, I don't even care about holidays. Like, I really, like, I, 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 I don't make a lot of preparations. It's genius. Because Lynn Miller, like, a month ago, before Israel, she's like, Gunnar, you know Easter's coming up. I'm like, yeah, I know. I kind of celebrate Easter. She's like, we're not going to just do coffee and goldfish. And I'm like, well, if you leave it up to me, that's exactly what it's going to be. And she's like, no, I'm going to go. Is, is it okay? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so she's setting stuff up. But this plan went into motion like like a long time ago. And it's a Passover. The, the plans are in motion like, hey, we got to get home to our families. Can we kind of like speed things up? If you break their legs, crucifixion, you actually died by suffocation. You could only breathe when you stood up on the nail that went through your ankles to gasp for a breath of air. And then on the wood, your back that had been torn up as you went down, it would tear it up even more. Eventually, you no longer had the strength to lift yourself up for the gasp of air. And you would just basically drown in the fluids of your lungs and you'd suffocate. And so in order to speed up the dying process, the Romans would take essentially a crowbar, break your legs, and then you had nothing to lift yourself up. So you'd speed up the dying process. And so this is what happened. They made the request. Let's speed things up. Verse 32. So when the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified and but coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now, I want to stop you. If you're a skeptic or if you're skeptimistic like I am, I'm skeptic and I'm a pessimist. And I, instead of just having two words, I created one, skeptimistic. They go, oh, Jesus wasn't really dead. These Romans were world-class executioners. When they saw he was dead, he was dead as a doornail. No question. But you'll see in verse 34, they didn't just take their own wisdom by it. They had a little safety check. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out of his side. And he who is seen has testified. John speaking of himself. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. John wrote his letters at the very end of his life. The other gospels had been written. All of the other apostles had been put to death for their proclamation that Jesus was alive and he'd risen from the grave. John was the only one that survived and it wasn't because they didn't try. 
Tradition holds that he was boiled in a vat of oil and he survived that. And when he survived that, the Nero or the emperor basically was so superstitious that if you were to survive this, that was really bad. And so they essentially just exiled John to the island of Cyprus where he lived out his life. And now he's an old, old man. He's the last of of the original apostles. He's the grandfather of the church and he writes his gospel and first second and third john and the letter of revelation to encourage the church and he gets to verse 35 this man who was standing there he said i have seen i have testified my testimony is true i know that i'm telling the truth my testimony won't change i don't care if you kill me my story isn't changing because this happened so that also you may believe this is where he's going for these things came to pass there it is again to fulfill scripture not a bone in him shall be broken which i believe this is from psalm 34 20 and again another scripture says from zechariah 12 10 they shall look on him whom they pierced it's amazing if you start looking at prophecy it's overwhelming you can't you can't make this stuff up. You can't, you can't force it to happen. Verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, yet another prophecy, according to Isaiah 53, 9, for he's a rich man. He has a, a tomb that's been set aside for rich people. And if you go to Isaiah 53, you'll see that, that this was told long ago that this would happen. Being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. He was a wealthy man. He believed, but he didn't let his faith in Christ be known because he didn't know what that would do politically or or the uproar that would happen by his faith. And so he asked Pilate, may I take the body of Jesus? And Pilate granted him permission. So he came and he took his body away. If you go to Israel today, you'll see that Golgotha, the, the spot for the garden tomb where they believe it's a short distance. Time was of the essence He's this rich man. He's like, you know what? I have a grave, a tomb that's unknown. It's unused. It's available. I'm willing to give it. Can I just take the body? And he's dead. He's paid his crime. Let's let's honor him now. And so Pilate gives him permission. Verse 39, Nicodemus. Who was Nicodemus? I'm glad you asked. Nicodemus from John chapter 3. This chapter, Nicodemus, this leader of the Jews, came to Jesus at night to ask him some questions. In this dialogue, Jesus begins to explain to him, it's not about religion, it's about relationship. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We all know that passage. This was the conversation he had with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a believer who had first come to him by night, John chapter 3. Also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body and they bound it in linen wrappings and with the spices as with the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. That's the crucifixion. They wrap him 100 pounds of weight in spices. This was their embalming process, their way to preserve the body, to honor it. They get it wrapped up. They place him in the tomb. They roll the stone over because of the political turmoil over this death. Pilate, I believe, stationed. We know there are guards there. I believe it was Pilate that ordered the guards to stand watch over the tomb. Because he didn't want any more drama. It was done. He'd done what they'd asked. He'd crucified this innocent man. And now they buried him. And he wanted, go to your homes. There's no more drama. Let's end this thing. The holiday had begun. They were, by Jewish law, now restricted from what they could do. Days passed. And as we come into John chapter 20, verse 1, we read, Now on the first day of the week, that's Sunday. 
This is significant if you question, did this whole story really exist? Look at our calendar. Look at our first day of the week. Everything changed with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, even to how we calculate time. The first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Who is Mary Magdalene? She was there at the cross. She was one of the three. The story is very fascinating at this point. And depending on the gospel, which where they kind of pick up the story, it depends on the, the goal that they're trying to accomplish. The fact that John records the women coming first is significant because this is what happened. He's telling the story what happened. He's not trying to make a legal case to us. The one that that goes through and says that the men were there first. Men were the only one that could give a testimony in court. Women had no legal grounds. Their, their testimony was inadmissible. It didn't matter. And if the early church was to, to create some concocted story about this guy who was the Messiah who was killed and then raised, they certainly wouldn't create a story with women. That would be foolish. They'd have it all with men because they want to strengthen their case. But they're not making this up. This is just what happened. And so Mary Magdalene, sometime early, three to six in the morning, pre-sunrise, while it was still dark, saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. I don't know if you can. We all have loved ones that are buried. I'm on the board of directors for the cemetery. Can you imagine the reaction of just burying your loved one a couple days goes by you're still sad and shaken up by it you want to go get some flowers and you want to go back to honor them or just to kind of have some like after you've kind of decompressed from the issue you walk to where they've been buried to place the flowers down and you see a big hole in the ground and a pile of dirt can you imagine how freaked out and emotional you would be with anger This is what she's feeling. The tomb's gone. Like, what is going on here? She didn't look inside. She immediately takes off to go to the apostles. She goes to Peter, who's the old guy of the apostles, sort of the leader. She ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's the author of this letter, the apostle John. And said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have taken him. Or they where they've laid him. So Peter and the other disciple John went forth. And they were going to the tomb. The two were running together. And this is totally not related to the story. But this part cracks me up. You have old guy and young guy on a foot race to the tomb. The author is writing. He says, yeah, there John and or there Peter and I were. We get the news. We both take off running as fast as we can. And the other disciple, that's me. Ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. But he didn't have the boldness. He's, he's scared. He doesn't go in. He goes to the tomb and he stops. And stooping and looking at... I'm, uh, two were running together, the other disciples faster. And Peter came to the... Ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first, verse 4. And stooping to looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And Simon Peter also came following him and he entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. So there's a foot race. John gets there first and Peter shows up. John kind of looks in. But it's not just like a hole in the wall. You have to kind of think compartments. The first hole that you would see in is the place where you would go to to weep and to mourn. And then an offshoot, we're told to the right, there's another sort of cave. And that's where the bodies would be. So you could go there and be outside near the body, weeping, mourning, leading gifts. John gets there. He kind of looks in. Peter gets there. He's in there. Then after Peter goes in, John goes in. And John sees the cloth. Don't think light robe, hundred pounds of spice was all mixed in. And I believe when he saw in the resurrected body was no longer bound to the way our laws and physics that when he rose, 
the cloth that was on his body didn't change. Certainly if it was grave robbers or tomb robbers, I guess you'd call it back then, everything would have been gone. And there the cloth was, just like it was on his body, yet the body went through it and the cloth just went right down. And John suddenly was like, oh, wow, I get it. I get it. Then the second miracle happened. A single guy had folded some clothes, whatever was on his face. It's the joke, but but the head cloth is sort of off to the distance. And, and there, there he says he saw and he believed. Verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. They leave the scene. They, he, he, he's not there. The cloth is there. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped and looked in the tomb. And she saw the two angels in white standing, sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, You angels are idiots. <laughs> like, why do you think I'm weeping? <laughs> I came here to like honor Jesus and he's gone. You're sitting where his head was and you're sitting where his feet are your angels. You think you should know these things. But I love the questions in the Bible. Why are you crying? And she said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Am I going to have to answer this question all day long? I don't have the emotional strength for this. You guys are killing me. Did you catch the news? What happened to Jesus a few days ago? This is where he was buried. Now he's gone. Somebody's desecrated his body. I want to get to the bottom of this. Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. I love it. So there's Jesus. She doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's the gardener. She's heard enough of his questions. She's, she just can't take it anymore. And she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, just tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. She's not thinking resurrection. If his body was in the way, if he was buried in this place and he wasn't supposed to be buried here, just tell me where he is and I'll, I'll make sure that he's cared for properly. Just stop messing with me. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. Can you imagine this? That she sees the risen Lord. Jesus said to her, which there's a telltale sign. It doesn't, John doesn't exactly say what she did. But by Jesus' reaction to her, stop clinging to me. I don't know if you served in the military, you ever went away, but like when you come back from deployment, like your mom or whoever functions as your mom or your wife is like, they're like all over you. Like, oh, honey, you're like, stop, 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 get off. We hugged already. (laughs) And she's like, not, she's like, I thought you were dead. Then I thought you were lost. And now you're here and I'm never letting go of you again. And I'm sure Jesus, like as dip, like as loving as possible, says, "Stop clinging to me." But I hear the 18-year-old gunner being clung to by women that were happy for me to be home in my own life. Like, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, "I ascend to my Father and your Father." Oh. My father and your father, this, this relationship with God is bridged. And my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he said these things to her. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut. Where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, they didn't quite get what she was saying. They thought she was having like post-traumatic stress disorder, that she was overreacting. They're still cowering in their building with all the doors locked. 
It reminds me of that Bale's Bondsman commercial that, uh, what is it, his name's not, King Stallman. When the raiders come to town, you see all the doors shut, all the deadbolts, locks, everything shut. And it's like, not everybody's happy about the raiders coming to town, but we are. Because they're Bale Bondsmen. And so you get the picture that they're like hunkered down like we can't go out there because what they did to Jesus, they're going to do to us. These guys were not courageous men. Until they saw the risen Lord and everything changed. When the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood. He didn't come through the door. He appeared. Can you imagine how terrified they would be at this point? The first thing he says is shalom. Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I also send you. That we as Christians, we've been commissioned to go out. And to share the good news. And maybe you're here today because somebody nagged you to come to church. And because it's Easter, you conceded. But this is sort of why we've, as Christians, we've been asked to share the good news. And when he'd said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, this poor guy, he has such a bad rap. Just... Leave him alone because we would all do the same thing. All your buddies say they saw the risen Lord. You're like, yeah, right. If he's alive, then where is he? When I see him, I'll believe. One of the 12 called Didymus, meaning the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Talk about missing the boat, buddy. Wrong place at the wrong time. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. The guys, whatever. Like you guys are like, this is not funny. Unless I see it, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight minutes, no, after eight days, can you imagine how long those days were? Can you imagine how aggressive the other apostles were to him? Dude, we saw it. We saw it. You've got to believe. You've got to believe. You've got to believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but be believing. I'm confident that the Lord is with us in our unbelief, saying, I want you to be believing. Where is it that you struggle? Let me help you have faith. Touch my hands. Touch my side. I want you to come into faith. And Thomas answered and said, my Lord, my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. John's getting to the purpose statement of his gospel. He said, Jesus did all sorts of other signs. He proved over and over and over again that he was the Messiah, that he was God. I couldn't write them all in this book. But these, the things I read in this gospel, wrote in this gospel, they've been written so that the reason of all of this is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I don't know where you stand, but there's a side of me that, and I say, I know it's foolish to say this, but I think it's unfortunate that you guys only know me as Pastor Gunner. Prior to 96, and for some time following my conversion, I was a different person. My SEAL buddies that knew Gunner back then, they call me Dirty Bird. 
They don't call me Dirty Bird because I didn't shower. They call me Dirty Bird because when it came to drinking, I was the one that busted out the wild turkey. And we went to town. I was the craziest. I was a wreck. I was so empty inside and trying to fill this void in my life. That because my friend Jr. nagged me over and over and over again to go to church and I finally conceded under the condition that he never asked me again. I went to church and look at the joke was on me. But through that season back in 1996, I came to understand one night after I'd been going to church, after I'd started to buy in to the whole Christian thing. I thought the girls were cute. I kind of thought they were like wholesome. I felt there was something like good about what was happening on Tuesday nights other than the free pizza. Like that the teaching was kind of interesting. Like I felt there was something there. And I thought because of my background just going that I was good with God. And it was another seal buddy one night after church that asked me the question, how are you and Jesus doing? Of course I knew the right answer. Good. We're doing awesome. He's like, no, no. How's your relationship? Good, good. We're right. And I went home that night and I, for weeks, like relationship. I mean, I knew the right answer. I knew what I was supposed to say. But what did it mean? Relationship. Jesus is just some story. I know he died on the cross for me. I know he rose from the grave. Kind of believe it. But it started to dawn on me that Jesus is alive from the grave. He's not dead. He's alive. He is pursuing you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to change your life, but he's not going to force himself upon you. You have the truth. It's up to you to respond by belief. And in belief, things happen. If you'll turn with me over to Romans. And in Romans chapter 4, where we're either going to be next week or in two weeks, at the very end of Romans, Paul, as he's writing out his legal description of what happened, as he lays forth the Christian constitution, which we're going through this year at church, after speaking about our, our terrible, sinful condition that separates us from God in the first three chapters of Romans, he begins sharing about that it's always been by faith. He speaks of terms to be justified, to be declared righteous by a holy God, not based on our own actions, but by the actions of Christ on the cross. And that his righteousness is imputed to us. It's credited to our account. Does it make me righteous? I have no righteousness. But God says that, you're righteous because you believed in what Jesus did and he was righteous. And so I'm transferring that to your account. And in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, it says, He, that's Jesus, who was delivered over because of our transgressions. That Jesus on the cross, as he was dying, as his flesh was being torn from his body, as he gave up his spirit, he had you in mind. He was doing it for you. He was doing it for me. 2,000 years before Gunnar was alive, he knew everything about me. And he knew that I would need a redeemer. And as his flesh was torn out of his back, it was paying the penalty that was due me. He was delivered because of our transgressions and he was raised up because of our justification. That God said that we are just, that we stand before him justified, a legal term, that a judge, the opposite would be condemnation. That because of faith in Christ on the cross, we stand justified. Just yesterday, see, I didn't grow up in circle, Christian circles, so I'm sure this one's like been going around forever. But it's new news to me, and I really liked it. I heard David Jeremiah say, well, how do we know? How do we know that Jesus dying on the cross was sufficient for us? We know because of the resurrection. See, every week for the church, I buy all kinds of stuff. I don't really buy it. I purchase stuff that we need. Goldfish is one of our big items. I think we keep that company in business. Pepperidge Farms is doing well because of our contribution to them. 
But when I buy this stuff, I have to bring a receipt. And then I stack all the receipts together and I stack a little piece of paper and I write out what each receipt was spent for. And then I'm reimbursed by the church. It's not my pay. It's just a reimbursement. But those receipts say that, yes, Gunnar Hansen with this card paid for this item in full. And if the payment for our sins was Jesus on the cross, our receipt that says paid in full, that it was accepted by God, was that his son rose from the grave. We know that we're accepted because God accepted the gift on the cross. It was sufficient for your sins. And if you're a Christian who's trusted in Christ, you can forgive yourself. Stop trying to make up any distance for Jesus. He forgave you. You're forgiven. We're free. That's why it's great news. And turn with me to Romans. I mean, first Corinthians chapter 15. And we're ending here. We read this passage earlier. First Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 14 says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is also in vain. He's already listed all of the people at the time of writing, upwards of 600 people. He's just speaking of men. There would have been more people. He said, all of these people will testify at the time of my writing that they saw the risen Lord. In verse 20, he says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul, this persecutor of the church, the one who killed Christians, met the risen Christ and he changed every, he changed sides totally. He followed after Christ. Tradition holds that his head was cut off for his testimony of the risen Lord. And as you follow the power of the resurrection down through chapter 15 will eventually come to verse 55. Or verse 54. And he says, talking about the resurrection of Christ, he says, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, meaning when he dies, and when this mortal will have put on immortality, meaning when he dies, then will come about the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Quoting from Hosea. I don't know if you've been to a funeral recently. The author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, tells us that it's better to be in a house of mourning than a house of feasting. And we'd be be praying for Bob. His dad passed away last week. And on Friday, on Good Friday, we did a service. And standing there with his family, everybody torn up. The reality is that that we have eternity in our hearts. And when we're faced with death, we can't even cope with it because we weren't designed to die. Sin has come, but see Christ rose from the grave. He's conquered death. And Paul ultimately goes to this. Oh, death. Where's your victory? Oh, death. Where's your sting? Verse 56, the sting of death is sin, but the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we no longer fear death. Amen? For those of us who believe, verse 58 is where I'm going. It says, therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The Christian life is a verb. It's not just fire insurance for the day you die. When you believe in Christ, you're sealed with the spirit. You're given the spirit. God has gifted you and he wants you to follow after him. So I encourage you believers in here. Be steadfast and movable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Father, we do thank you and praise you. For the gospel. Father, I pray for those in this room that maybe don't know you as Savior. Lord, I don't know everybody in this room, yet you do. And Lord, I ask that you would so move in their heart, Lord, in a way that you would help them to move from unbelief to belief. That they would experience the peace and joy that I experienced in Christ back in 96. 
Father, I thank you for each brother and sister in Christ here, Lord, that they've come to know you as Savior. Father, I pray that you would ground us in the gospel, that you would help us to master the understanding of grace. Father, help us to walk in it. Father, show us what it is that you want from us, that we could be, uh, that we could live out our lives in a way that's pleasing to you. We thank you, Lord, for Christ. We thank you that he died for us. We thank you that he rose again. We pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.